You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Joining me now in studio is somebody that doesn't need much of an introduction. He is a author, he is a journalist, he is an editor, and he is now um, delving into the very murky world of Steinhoff. Rob Rose, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Rob, last time we chatted quite a few years back, you had just written a book, The Grand Scam by Barry Tannenbaum. Is this even grander? Steinhoff, I think, is even grander than that. I mean, Steinhoff, if you look at it um, compared to international norms, it's, it's really comparable to Enron and any of the big financial scandals we've had in the world. So it's, it's I mean, there's, there's so many layers to it. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Um, I suppose it's the same kind of questions you asked about Enron at the same time. Well, talking about Enron, let's delve right into it. Enron resulted in one of the biggest um, consulting and um, forensic auditing firms in the world collapsing, which was Anderson, mm-hmm. Arthur Anderson Consulting. Do you think there's going to be collateral damage with any of the big five with regards to what we've now seen with Steinhoff? You know, Deloitte, Deloitte were the auditors of Steinhoff. Um, and I think that in the in the years since Enron happened, I think a lot of the big auditing companies and consulting companies have learned to insulate themselves to some extent from fallouts like this so that the entire company isn't compromised. Um, you know, the, the scandals you've seen in the last year involving KPMG, for example, the VBS scenario at, uh, in which KPMG were the auditor and there was actual corruption. In, in a normal world, say if this was 20 years ago, now that might have sunk KPMG, but the fact that you have almost limited liability partnerships in each country and you have a sort of a division of responsibility that allows other parts of the business to claim culpable deniability means that the odds of having a massive failure like that are slim. I mean, KPMG has had these massive three scandals in a row, um, and yet it's still standing, uh, sort of. It's lost a lot of clients. But, um, I mean, would that have been the same scenario 20 years ago? I doubt it. Well, one of the best legislation that George W. Bush ever passed was after the whole Enron Anderson consulting scandal, and that was to ensure that audit firms would not have other relationships with mm. their clients, that they would be rotated during a specific period of time, etc. Do we have something similar? Is Uber doing its job in South Africa when it comes to um, the, 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 as a watchdog over the, the audit profession? I think there are some really good rules that Uber does have in place. I mean, for example, there's now the, the audit firm rotation, um, which they, which they, they want to implement. Uh, and some of the auditing companies have been quite resistant to that. But it's, you know, if a company's got a relationship of 90 years with, say, you know, there are many companies in JSC, we have long established relationships. Are you going to be as diligent as a company who's entirely new to the audit? Are you going to question things from the start? Of course not. You can also say with Uber though, that it should not have taken four years for the investigation into African Bank to to be where it is now. Um, so accountability is sort of there; it's it's quasi there, I suppose, in a sense. But for real accountability to be to be happening, you need to have investigations that are more relevant, more topical, and quicker. So people need to see justice done quicker. Well, if you look at the legislation that created Uber and regulate the, the audit industry, they have severe sanctions. If an auditor is caught covering up on behalf of a client, etc., you're looking at 10 years imprisonment and or a 10 million rand fine. I personally don't know of any auditor that's ever had a sanction like that. And when one looks at the history of, of corporate corruption in South Africa, one could use J. Arthur Brown from Prudentia as an example. Mm-hmm. Surely there's auditors that should have been held accountable. Perhaps you know of any cases where auditors were held accountable. Uh, not really. I mean, the case of VBS, I think, is a case where, you know, the auditor is alleged to have specifically taken money himself, like a massive amount, and and presided over a corrupt audit. And that, that, is, that is unfathomable. I mean, you have scenarios where auditors mess up, and that does happen more often, say, African Bank. Um, 
you know, notionally, I suppose that's what they're investigating, but actual corruption isn't something you see often in an auditing company. But it's like a lot of what we have in this country. We, we do have some pretty good rules, some pretty good corruption rules. It's The question is always implementing them and implementing mm-hmm. them in a way that, that leads to, to good solutions for everyone. It's, you know, if we have all these fantastic laws that look great, passing new laws isn't going to help you if you're not implementing a single thing. If the hawks can't deal with the Estina Dairy thing and put people in jail, then what's the point of having the rules? You know, you've just said something which is exactly what Radovan Kreitscher paraphrased. He said that when you were shopping around for a new country when things were getting hot in the Seychelles, he was told that South Africa has incredible legislation but no willpower to enforce it. And that's what's so sad about South Africa. We've become a haven for public and private sector corruption. And what, what, what one doesn't realize, one hears it now in inquiries, is that it's not just a symbiotic relationship between the public and private sector mm. that allows for this to happen, but it's downright relationships that are established. Who can forget that Agrizi recently mentioned that he was threatened by none other than the guys that were involved in the whole Kebble murder case, mm. etc. So it, it seems to me that we, we haven't quite become a captured state because we have a functioning judiciary. We have a functioning democracy. We saw that after the last local elections where there was a peaceful handover of power in three metros from the ruling party to what's the national opposition. So I'm, I'm fairly positive. But when people say we captured, they're not altogether wrong. What is your take when people say, listen, there's, there's capture, but it's on a large scale? Well, I mean, there certainly has been massive elements of a society that have been massively compromised, um, and government has been has been one element of it. Um, and it's, that's, you know, it's very clear. To, it's very clear to see not just with Agrizi's testimony, but but in what's happened over the last few years. Um, and like you say, accountability, getting accountability is, is the main issue. But you know, we don't have great law enforcement in this country. The Scorpions, for example, before they were dissolved um, by by I think it was the ANC majority in Parliament. Um, they had at, at one stage a 92% conviction rate. They were really, they really got the job done. Now you could you could take issue with the way they did things. They're kind of Hollywood style, um, you know, putting people in, in, arresting them with a thousand cop cars with blue lights and a media barrage. Um, but people were getting sent to jail. I mean, Regal Bank was one of them where Jeff Levenstein was arrested and and he went to jail. Um, there've been others as well. I mean, the, the real issue is you need to have. You know, you don't, you can't afford to have the Estina Dairy situation being dropped. You can't afford to have that case being mishandled. Um, because those are the ones that the entire world's watching and, and that doesn't look great when we can't, we can't prosecute the major fraud of our, of our the last couple of years. Well, you make a valid point. Um, Look, everybody has the opinion of the Scorpions. My opinion was, as a very small unit, they, they had great success, but that was through cherry picking. They, they got to choose which cases they wanted to run, and they had every resource available, you know, made available to them. The, the that's, Hawks. That's a good point, but on the other hand, when there was a major scandal in the country or something happened, people say get the Scorpions onto it, and so, so they might have cherry picked certain high profile cases, but if they got the job done, then, um, you, you could say that the pros outweigh the cons. Well, people were scared of the Scorpions, of the Scorpions, I liked the fact that they had such a high media profile because you wanted to see people swooping in, you wanted to see people in handcuffs, you wanted to see justice, and that was their slogan, justice in action. But what, what concerns me now is that people now compare the Hawks to the Scorpions, and what they don't realize, it's a, it's a very unfair comparison. I prefer to compare the Scorpions to the SIU of old. The SIU of old, before they had their wings clipped, um, had 500 permanent investigators and 2,000 contractors. Those 2,000 contractors 
contractor posts were were stopped. So they effectively can't operate the way they, they, they could, but they're still trying under presidential proclamation. When Heath was still in charge of it, although it was later declared unconstitutional, he had a tribunal. So they could go after people civilly so that they could recover, and that worked very, very well. He started off in the Eastern Cape under Mandela's instructions and then became a national unit. So when it comes to the Hawks, um, the, the issue I have is that it's the Directorate of Priority Crime Investigation. However, every police station that has a fraud case they find difficult or perhaps it's too complex for their understanding, they escalate it to the Hawks. It should not be going to the Hawks. And what's happening now within government, within the South African Police Services, is they establishing a commercial crime component within the SAPS. So that will free up the DPCI to actually do what their mandate says, and that's investigate priority crime and not all fraud cases that are just referred to them. So let's hope that happens. We also have the serious economic offences under General Connor, which seem to be functioning again. They're running from Arcadia, Pretoria. So let's hope we see some changes. But a lot of what's happened in the past has come back to haunt us. And the closing of the Scorpions and the manner in which it was done has left a permanent stain on law enforcement in South Africa. And it's only going to be a generational change before people have faith in our state law enforcement. Absolutely. You talk about General Kano. He's also the guy who's leading the Steinhoff investigation. Um, but the way in which he dealt with the Transnet investigation uh, certainly leaves a lot to be desired. Um, you know, from what Popo Malefa was saying, this guy did nothing for ages. And the people I know at Steinhoff who talk of their interactions with the Hawks are not particularly glowing about the level of understanding forensic skills um, and just capability there to understand what's going on. And this is a massive, complicated fraud. You need to have good skills there. But like you say, if you have every single case being lobbied, lobbed up to the, to the Hawks, um, because the SAPS themselves don't have the skills to do the basics, um, it becomes a, a system under severe strain all, all right the way down. It's true, and it's, it, it it's definitely has that knock-on effect. We're going to take a breather. When we come back, I want to chat to you a little bit more about Barry Tannenbaum, the grand scam, what happened um, in the years since you wrote that book. And then more importantly, we're going to chat about Steinhoff in a manner that my listeners will at least be able to understand what happened, because for me, it is so complex. Mm. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. We're having a very interesting conversation today with Rob Rose, and it's all about Steinhoff. And I think it's very applicable that we have him in studio today, considering all the different inquiries that are taking place, from the inquiry into fitness to hold office into Jiba Rwebi, all the way into the PRC inquiry, because PRC has a direct link to Steinhoff, and of course the state capture inquiry. Let's start off with, with PRC. Public Investment Corporation invests on behalf of organizations such as the Government Employees Pension Fund. Did they invest heavily in, in Steinhoff, like has been said, and will it have an impact on pensioners? Well, I mean, st- the PIC definitely did have quite a large um, investment in Steinhoff, running into a couple of billions. Um, I've forgotten exactly how many billions so far. Um, and it also advanced a loan to Jane Renaidu to, to buy shares in it as well. Um, so to some extent, that, that everyone's pension took a knock. Steinhoff was a large company, and you had, I think it was 1,600 also pension funds in the country, had exposure to Steinhoff. So it was pretty big. And to that extent, it shaved bits off people's pension funds. But, you know, 
the reality of life is if you have a pretty good investment manager, you don't just have one stock in it. So nobody would, would have lost 100%. You have, you know, a whole range of them. And it's the same with the PIC. They have a large, a large amount of money that comes from various other things, bonds, different equities. So people's pensions took a knock. But it wasn't as if you were particularly wiped out. I mean, some people, certainly some of the Steinoff executives and some of the Steinoff employees had, had all their money tied up in Steinoff shares. And for them, they've been decimated. I mean, I keep hearing stories of people who moved in with their parents, who sold what they could. So when you work with a company and you buy the vision of it, um, and the vision that you're conquering the world one new acquisition at a time and, and it all collapses, then I think life becomes a lot, a lot harder. Um, but for the average person, you know, it, it would have been it would have been a knock to their pension, but not not a, uh, a critical, fatal one. Absolutely sickening. And I'll tell you, there's even knockoffs from the initial um, scandal of Steinhoff. I'll, I'll give you a, a, a very simple example. I have a client that we're assisting with an investigation. She invested her her life savings with her so-called investment advisor. He did not invest the money in Steinhoff like he claimed, but when the Steinhoff collapse occurred, he came back to her and said, I'm sorry, I lost all your money in Steinhoff. Meanwhile, he was running what I believe to have been a Ponzi scam. So <laughs> so there's people that even take advantage of a scandal that they may have not necessarily been involved with. But before we carry on with Steinhoff and before you explain to our listeners in in simple terms that we can understand what happened, tell us what's happened with Barry Tannenbaum. Is he still walking free? Yeah, I mean, he's in Australia. Uh, last I heard from him, an Australian journalist contacted me and they said, that they called an Uber and this guy called Barry Tannenbaum um, pitched up to give them a ride. So Barry was apparently driving this Uber around. So this journalist interviewed him um, and I think there was a video clip doing the rounds of, of Barry giving his, giving his, um, telling his sad story of how he has no money and he has to now drive an Uber in, in, on the Gold Coast in Australia. So in terms of that, initially there was a, uh, a request for mutual legal assistance filed to get him back here, there were arrest warrants, and nothing seems to have happened. So, you know, it's not as if Barry Tannenbaum had much political clout or you're protecting your friends. That's a guy who a lot of people ripped off by, who could be in jail, and all we need to do is sort out an extradition treaty, extradition agreement, and that wasn't done. Um, and that, that, to me, speaks volumes about just the capacity in the state. There's certainly nobody being protected there. It's just simple ineptitude. I think what happened with Australia, if you see the fact that the Bobroffs are there and they do have to come here to account for the allegations that have been made against them, um, Tannenbaum is there. He does have to come here to make, um, you know, to, to, to give his version of events. But after Roger Stratton, um, was, was granted exemption from being extradited based on two factors, his health and the, and the condition of our prisons, do you think there's a reluctance on the on the part of the NPA to proceed, thinking that perhaps this has now become precedent in Australia? I think there's a reluctance as well, but I think it's also ineptitude. I mean, they really should should give it a go. I mean, you have to try that, and you have to make your argument. Otherwise, what you're sell, telling people is that commit a large crime in this country and go to Australia, and you're free for life. And that that is a terrible it's a terrible perverse incentive to, to give to people to stay within the law in this country. Is that you can just hop over to Oz and you know, go and live it up in Sydney, and that's not that's not that's not a great signal. Well, thank goodness we now have an MLA in place with Dubai, and let's hope we see some changes <laughs> with Dubai soon. We'll be back straight after this. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. We're chatting to Rob Rose about his book, Steinheist, which is available in all good bookstores and is a necessary read if you want to understand the complexities in a simple format. So with that being said, 
help us understand what happened with Steinhoff? Well, um, there's a lot that went wrong there. There's a lot of elements to it. Um, for one thing, there's this, this notion of related party deals, where if you're running a company um, and you do a deal with yourself, you should flag that to people so your shareholders can see whether they're being ripped off or not. Um, but for one thing, there were certain deals done in which Marcus Yuster, who was the CEO at the time, was essentially doing business with himself. To give one example, which was actually in SARS court documents, I think it was 2001, uh, Steinhoff says, actually we're buying these forests from Barla World. Um, and it'll cost us 11.9 million according to the SARS documents. Um, these forests so we can use the wood to make, to make furniture, which is what Steinhoff did at the time. Um, and then it immediately says, actually we don't want to buy these forests. Uh, instead, this consortium is going to buy the forest. And the consortium, it, it turned out in the SARS papers, was actually owned by Marcus. This was undisclosed by the CEO. And three years later, Steinhoff changes his mind and says, well, actually, we do decide we want to buy the forest, but for 149 million rand. So in three years, the value goes up by many multiples, and the person who benefits from that would be the CEO. Now, that was not disclosed as related party deals. So there were many elements like that, related party deals, that were taking place. Then there was an, there were numerous other things. The accounts were being fiddled with to the extent that, say, properties um, were overvalued in the books, which allowed Steinhoff to increase the value of its of its equity and then do a whole lot of deals overseas. Um, so that's another element of it. So properties were, I think, the overseas property portfolio was valued at 2.1 billion euros. And last year, after Marcus used to quit, they did a review of this and said, actually, no, we're writing it down to 1.1 billion. So half the value of the property portfolio was was inflated. Um, there were numerous little little things like that, which which was part of the problem at at Steinhoff. There was, yeah, I mean, there's basically situations where you have secret parties living in Switzerland who would who this, who Marcus Joster would others was allegedly I'll use that word right now conspire with to buy certain assets, take it off the books of Steinhoff to make your overall numbers that you present to your shareholders look better. In the same way that Enron did similar things, to take debt off their books. Enron, Enron made the term off-balance sheet entities seem commonplace. Essentially, if you got, say, 100 billion, 100 billion rand in debt, you stick it in this, in this company outside of your company where you only own 40% and so don't have to disclose it. Um, and, and in that way, the numbers you present to your shareholders will have a lot less debt in it. I know of a, a very well-known bank that did that, and I'll chat you off air about that because what you just <laughs> said there is fascinating because I know of a, a local example. But what you said at the beginning, the first analogy you gave regarding the forest is very interesting. I'll tell you why it's interesting to me. In the days of the Brutabord, when an area was identified where there would be a township built or where there would be a hospital built or university built, etc., allegedly – it was discussed amongst the brooders um, which property would be available so that it could be bought. And then three to four years later, when the state was ready, they would then buy that from those mm. brooders at massively inflated prices. So this is not unusual. And this is what something I wish people would understand is that the corruption, both of the private and public sector, is nothing new. It goes back years. It's just because of investigative journalism that is now free. And hopefully without favor, after listening to Agrizi today, the majority of people he named who don't know. So it shows that the majority of journalists in this country are free and, and don't favor. It just shows that it's something that's nothing new. My question to you, why is Marcus Huster walking free? Well, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, if you have a look at, say, you talked about Barry Tannenbaum, the equivalent in Australia was was Bernie Madoff, and Madoff um, was in prison within a very short time. He's been serving a prison sentence for years. 
Um, Marcus Huster walks around Hermanus. He goes on walks around the cliffs. He basically lives his life and doesn't seem to fear too much. Um, he went to Parliament a couple of months ago where he presented his version of events, which is that, you know, nothing was really wrong. I was deceived by this foreign, foreign partner of mine overseas, but, you know, I did everything right. And I think that there's a forensic investigation which PWC is conducting into Steinhoff, which, which I, I believe will show different. He started off very young, um, I think doing his articles in SARS, mm. and he was, he founded or was a member of one of the very first special investigative units within SARS because he was regarded as exceptionally bright. The story goes that whilst conducting one of his audits, he met one of the very famous Stellenbosch members, aka Mr. Visa, and Mr. Visa said to him, listen, I see a future for you. Is there any truth in that story? I spoke to you, I spoke to Christo about it quite a lot. I mean, essentially what happened is that he was, he did, he did work at SARS, Marcus Joster. Um, he, he then did, um, that, I think those were the days when instead of going to fight in the army, you could choose to work at SARS instead. He did his articles then at, at Greenwood, Baker Greenwood, Tilly Baker Greenwood, I think it was, um, and, and, and Greenwood's audited Christo Vista's diamond company, Octa, I think it was Octa Diamonds. So he walked in there and met Christo there. Christo says he made a bit of an impression, you know, a smart guy and, but then didn't, didn't see him for years after that. Um, and the next time he saw him was years later when Marcus came to him with several deals. Obviously it was important to Marcus to get Christo Vista, the country's biggest investor, into Steinhoff. So he had a complicated deal like, you know, Christo was selling Lanzarek, the wine farm. Um, and Marcus said, you know, we want to buy this, or this consortium of ours want to buy Lanzarek, but can we pay you in Steinhoff shares instead? So that's how Christo first got sucked into, into the Steinhoff, uh, scenario. Now, Christo was, was chairman and CEO at, at, at a stage, is that correct? Um, I mean, Christo was chairman, he only came in in 2014, um, he was, Right in the end, he took he took over after Marcus quit for a short period, but then he quit. So Marcus has been running the show, and Marcus has definitively been running the show for years. It it has seemed like his company. Um, so yeah, I mean, Christo. If you listen to Christo, he was unlucky to get sucked in, but Christo completely bought the story, and Did Christo was about to fold Shoprite in with in with Steinhoff, and that would have that would have completely decimated him. He said to me that if he'd waited another year longer, he would have been totally wiped out. Did he genuinely lose as much money as he claims he lost? Well, he did have a large chunk in Steinhoff shares, and those those shares have completely lost all their value. So, yeah, he lost a lot of money. And his argument has always been, you know, if I knew this was a scam, if I knew that this was problematic, then why would I have put so much of my wealth in there? Um, and it makes him it makes him furious when you talk to him about that. <laughs> but when one looks at him as such, such a successful businessman over the years, one has to ask the obvious question: How could he not know what was going on in something he was so heavily invested in? I mean, that's the question. He obviously bought the story that he was told. He he got invested. I, th- I think he he began um, in 2014. He folded Pepco into into Steinhoff. Uh, Steinhoff bought Pepco for 62. Billion Rand, which was the biggest deal in this country at the time, biggest retail deal. Um, and then Christo got a large chunk of the Steinhoff shares. And his ultimate plan was to then fold ShopRite in and have a sort of an African retail champion, which would have included Steinhoff Africa, the Star, Pepco, and then the foreign asset Steinhoff, which would be listed in Frankfurt. Um, and Christo just, he completely trusted Marcus. Uh, so did Bruno Steinhoff, who started the company in the 1960s. He, he talked about Marcus as being his son. He would tell people that. And I went and met Bruno uh, for this book in, in Germany and... Um, and he was gutted by this. He, he was completely, he feels utterly betrayed by someone who was his son. Is there anything to recover? Do you think we'll see 
apart from the fact that justice is slow in this regard, but do you think we will see any recovery for the pension funds? Are there any assets out there that can be liquidated? And most importantly, do we think that in terms of what you have 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 researched, do you think we will see Eurster in the dock? I do think we'll see Eurster in the dock, despite General Connor um, and the, and some elements in the in the Hawks. I mean, I do think that what's been done to fix up the prosecuting authority is is a good thing, and I think that there will be consequence, but it'll take a while. What what is a lot quicker to happen is that the private interests certainly will act. So the people who've lost money will will take private action against Marcus Eusterg against Steinhoff and that makes it a lot trickier so what will Steinhoff have once people lodge claims for all the value they lost because it's not just it's not just what they have now it's the value they lost when the shares tumbled in value because of the fraud and that that could that could do some serious damage to Steinhoff as a continuing going concern they do have they do have good elements good, good companies within the actual structure which could be sold off but will that be enough to compensate for the legal claims at this stage I don't know and tell me, um, in, in terms of what, what we've seen happening, um, has Eurster got other people that are going to fall with him? Has anybody turned against him? And most importantly, we hear about these investigations taking place, but is there actually a registered case that the NPA are looking at? Yes. I mean, Steinhoff lodged um, a case and a few others have lodged criminal cases too. So, the, so there is actually a criminal, criminal investigation on the go. So that's that's partly why I think there'll be consequence for this. Um, and in terms of you know what will happen after this, whether anyone will go to jail, whether Marcus will be in the dock, I mean I'm sure it'll definitely happen at some stage. He has accomplices who helped him because you don't pull off a, a massive um, you know 200 billion fraud without help. Um, and there are people overseas who who were considered accomplices, and and I think that certainly they'll have to they'll have to come and spill the beans themselves. Rob Rose, author of Steinheist, the story of Marcus Eurster and the Steinhoff scandal, available in all good bookstores. Get a copy. It's something that we need to understand. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. And next time, let's try chat about something nice. Every time I have you in studio, it's another huge scandal that's <laughs> stolen people's life, sta- life savings. Yeah, we should chat about Parks and Joburg. I think so. Let's talk about Parks and Rec. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Confidential Brief. I'll be back same time, same place next week. If you enjoyed the show or if uh, you'd like any of your friends to listen, the podcast will be uploaded within 24 hours and there will be a repeat later in the week.